We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And I see at this time kids are dismissed for Children's Church, so thank you patient kids and parents, but uh, this is your exit time. All right, well thank you Pastor Darren for leading us in just a little bit of focus on baptism and membership. And you know, like Darren said, we have one person already that's indicated, and uh, we have set a, a suggested date of uh, June the 12th, but I think we've conferred, and if, that, if, if what's holding you back is that date doesn't work, not a problem, we'll dunk you any time during the month of June, we'll say. So any time in that window, we would love to hear testimonies um, and see people commit their lives to Jesus and be baptized. So keep praying, and, and uh, again, come talk to us if the Spirit is nudging you in, in either of those directions. All right, well, um, I should introduce myself. My name is Don Fraze. I am the uh, transitional pastor here, and it's my privilege this morning to continue our series in the book of John. So if you have a Bible or you follow on a screen somehow, the, the scripture will be on uh, on on the screen as well. But anyway, we're going to be in John chapter 14 today. Now, I feel like the message, we've already almost sung it, and Darren's referred to some things we're going to talk about today. But this is the passage where Jesus comforts his disciples, and it's a very famous passage because it's the passage that we use to especially comfort those when we want to point them towards heaven and eternity. And so that's what this, where this text is going to start today. So my question off the top for all of you is this. How do you picture heaven? So anyway, I found a few pictures. They're not that great, but this may help us out. So maybe it's, you know, the pearly gates and the sky and clouds and, you know, all that excitement of floating around in the clouds playing a harp. Maybe some of you think that. Okay. Or maybe some of you are just a way more spiritual and next picture, you know, you just have this whatever, this mystical picture of being in the presence of Jesus and, you know, I don't know, maybe you're picturing gold streets and, and all that really cool stuff. Maybe, maybe you picture it that way. But I think that, that maybe a lot of you might picture it in this last slide I have, which is, uh, sorry, you're not going to get to play golf. No, I have no idea. <laughs> well, you know, as I, as I looked at this picture, I thought, you know, we so often, I think when we picture, picture heaven... You know, one of the first places we go to is often the idea of reward, right? Sort of reward, maybe, maybe some sort of, you know, think of it in the sense of leisure, you know? It's like, oh, work is over, pain is over, I'm just going to like kick back and play golf or I don't know what we think. And again, you know, maybe some of you that, again, that are way more spiritual than me, you, maybe you think that heaven's going to be like a perpetual worship service. Now, I know some of you are going, please, not that. Okay, I love church too, but I mean, if heaven's going to be like just a perpetual worship service or some form of, you know, I think, I don't know why we get so um, weirded out to think about heaven. And, you know, but here's what always hits me, and again, this is just my speculation. If God created the heavens and the earth and created us as humanity to give us a world where we have purpose, where we have meaning, where we have work, where we have adventure, if that's a part of what God intended our life to be, why would heaven be any different? So let me just encourage you today, if there's any of you, especially younger people, who are thinking, like, heaven just sounds really boring, floating around on clouds and being in a perpetual worship service, 
You can be relieved. I don't think it's going to be that way. I, I don't think we can even imagine, but I think it's going to be so more amazing than anything we can hope or imagine. The things that give us the most fulfillment life here on earth is going to be like whatever, quadruple, ten times, a billion times, those feelings of fulfillment and meaning and purpose as I believe what God would have in us, have for us. So I hope that that brings you some comfort today as, as we think about God's promise. So when we go to the scripture today, I'll invite you now to turn to John chapter 14. And as I said, Jesus is uh, going to comfort his disciples and this is going to be part of it. So the scripture says, starting at verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. So Jesus is observing his disciples, thinking about all the things that have gone on and all of the very troubling things he has said and spoken, and he realizes, oh man, these guys are confused and scared and troubled. And Jesus, as their leader, looks with compassion and and he realizes, wow, I need to comfort these guys. Their, their hearts are troubled. We need to, to just to reflect a little bit, though, on Jesus' heart and, how, and why was Jesus troubled? Because Jesus has been communicating in these last few chapters that we've been through, right? So if we go back a few chapters, Jesus is troubled over the unbelief of the people, right? He's been teaching, doing miracles, showing and proving he's the Messiah, and yet still the majority of the people doubt and don't believe. That's been troubling him. Jesus also is aware that his hour is coming, or the, the, the coming time of his death, and all that's going to happen with that. And he's troubled about that. And he's been trying to explain that this has to happen to his disciples and others, and they're not getting it, and it's hard, and he's deeply troubled. Jesus also is very troubled because one of his closest companions, one of his 12 disciples, Judas, has betrayed him or is going to betray him. And just carrying that burden and that happening, that, that's troubling to him. And then just at the end of the last chapter, Jesus predicts that Peter, one of his other close companions, is going to disown him. And Jesus knows that when the times of trouble come, his disciples are going to abandon and desert him, and he's troubled. So I just want you to picture Jesus in his humanity being deeply troubled with all that has gone on and all that he's been trying to communicate, all that he's feeling, all of the brokenness when he thinks of these close companions around him. And yet it's from that posture, it's from that heart that Jesus comes to comfort his own disciples. He sees their need for comfort and he chooses to lay aside his to again serve, to give. That's our Jesus. So in these few verses here, how does Jesus begin to comfort them? Well, he starts out by really challenging them in the area of trust. He's basically saying to them, my disciples, do you really trust me? See, when he says here, um, you believe in God, believe also in me, in a sense, I think what he's trying to say is, hey, you're all good Jewish boys, you believe in God, but do you believe in me? Do you believe and trust God, but do you trust me? Do you trust what I've been saying, where I'm leading you, who I am? Do you trust me? 
And I wonder with us, I, I've thought of this often, you know, if someone were to sort of say to me, Don, do you believe in God? Well, that's an easy answer, right? Yes, of course, I believe in God. But if someone was to ask me, do you always trust God? Different question, right? We believe in God, we believe in Jesus, but do we trust him? When we look at the things in life that don't make sense, the things in life that we're angry about, disappointed in, feel like God's let us down in terms of the promises that we thought we were holding on to. And yeah, sometimes those kinds of things shake us at our very belief, but most often we're shaken most in, yeah, I believe you, Jesus, but do I trust you? Do I really trust you, even in my brokenness? That's a tough question. But this is what Jesus is wanting to comfort his disciples with, to say, I'm here with you. The God you believe in stands before you, and you can trust me. I'm here for you. I'm with you. And so with that, as Jesus comforts them by calling them to trust, he also wants to comfort them by just affirming his presence with them. Again, they've been troubled, he's been troubled because he's been talking about going away and he's been talking about death. He's been talking about all these crazy things that they don't get because they think Messiah is about to rule and, and they're troubled about all that. And yet Jesus is saying, yeah, that, that is going to happen. There's going to be a time of trouble and trial. But I'm coming back. I'm going to be with you. I want to comfort you by, by you knowing that being a part of me and me being a part of you, that's important. My presence, us being together as spiritual family is so important. And he, and he wants to comfort them with that. So when Jesus says these words about preparing rooms in his father's house, I'm going there to prepare a place. I want you to, I'm going to come back so you can be with me. So is, is, he, is he just talking about heaven here, about the future, a future in heaven with him? I believe he is, but I think what he wants them to get maybe even more than that is how much he's inviting them into family and how much, is he, how much he is saying that he wants to be present with them and them with him. Now, there's a, there's a cultural metaphor going on here that um, I'm not sure if the disciples are getting it right at the moment. I know they will later, but it's something that we as the reader are supposed to get. And that cultural metaphor is a Jewish wedding. You see, in a Jewish wedding, um, the, the groom would be building a portion of the house or onto the house of his father in order to prepare their new dwelling for when they're married. That sounds great, young couples, right? Living with the in-laws, right? But that was a part of their culture. So after the wedding, the groom would take the bride and take the bride to the room that he had built and prepared for her in his father's house. So that was the cultural picture, and that's what Jesus is trying to say here. He's saying, you are my bride, and I am like your groom, and I want to be in this kind of intimate relationship with you to the point where I'm building a house for you in my father's house, and I'm going to take you there, and we're going to be together. That, that's the picture here. Now, if, if any of you grew up with um, the old English version of the scripture, what we call the King James Version, um, the line in that version of the Bible says that, that talks about mansions, right? And, and maybe some of you have heard people say before, you know, I can hardly wait to go to heaven because I'm going to get my mansion. 
And so sometimes we, we get some of these weird views about heaven because we have this mansion idea. Well, sorry to deflate you, but the, the Greek word that was translated into mansion back in 16-whatever, um, well, it really just means rooms or dwelling places. But in 17th century Old English, mansion just simply meant a room. Not like it does today. Language always evolves and changes. Today, mansion, we're thinking Beverly Hills or whatever. Uh-uh, just a room. So again, the picture here isn't, oh, wow, heaven, mansion, perfect, perfect, you know, like, that's not what we're supposed to get excited about. That's not what the great promise is. The great promise here is, is that God Almighty is inviting us into family. God Almighty is saying, there's a room for you in my house. You live with me. You are a part of my family. That's the invitation. And that's, that's the comfort here. You know, so when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare this room for you, this dwelling for you in my father's house. But then I'm going to come back. So what does he mean by I'm going to come back? Now, as I studied this, I'll just to let you know, theologians and commentators debate this fiercely. And so I'll, I'll, I'll unpack a little bit of you. But so... By Jesus coming back, does he mean that he's going to come back to them after the resurrection? So that's the first possibility, right? Yes, Jesus is going to go to his death, but then three days later, he's going to rise again, and then Jesus spent like 40 days appearing to the disciples and many others. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is after the resurrection, we'll be together again, I'll be with you? Perhaps. Was Jesus referring to what we call the day of Pentecost? which was going to come later. The day of Pentecost is the day when the Holy Spirit came. And so later in this chapter, Jesus is going to say, hey, you know what? It's good for you that I leave because I'm going to send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who's going to indwell you and be with you. So could Jesus have been referring to this, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as him coming back to them and his presence being with them? Of course, the, mo the obvious one that we most often think in this text is that Jesus is talking about what we call the second coming, or that at the end of time, Jesus will return, we sang about it, and it is well, when the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Is he referring to that, the second coming, when, when Jesus will come to take his bride and take the bride of Christ, the church, believers in Jesus, to those rooms in the Father's house? So, which one is it? Well, my suggestion and conclusion from all my study would be that the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> you know what it's like? It's kind of like, have you ever been in a situation where someone who makes really yummy homemade pies, and they're saying, would you like banana cream or apple rhubarb? Those just happen to be my two favorite. And the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> At first they look at you funny and then they realize, oh, you want both. Well, that's what this is like. This is all of these promises of Jesus' presence are what Jesus is referring to. And so his disciples can take great comfort in the fact that, hey, Jesus is going to be resurrected and be with them. The Spirit of God is going to come so that the presence of God is going to be in them and with them, and then he's going to come again to fulfill that final promise. And that's his comfort to them, and that's Jesus' comfort to us. So let me ask you this. If you can picture Jesus looking at you, 
and seeing into your troubled heart. Do you think Jesus would want to comfort you? I want to declare to you in the name of Jesus that your Jesus loves you, his daughter, his son, and he sees your troubled hearts and he wants to comfort you. Can I, I'm going to use the word beg, can I beg you to resist the thoughts that I think comes from our enemy, that God is perpetually disappointed in you, that Jesus is always wagging his finger and going, you're not good enough, you're not spiritual enough, you're not serving enough, get your act together, what's wrong with you? We so often believe that lie and think that that's what Jesus is thinking when he looks at us, and we forget that Jesus looked at his disciples, saw their troubled hearts, and had compassion. He looks at your troubled heart, and he has compassion. And I encourage you to receive that today, no matter what you're going through. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, receive this in your spirit. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, Jesus doesn't promise here that he's going to change the circumstances or fix the problems. Shoot, that would be so good, right? But no, actually, he promises something even better. He promises his presence, and he promises rest for your souls. You know, the greatest miracle of comfort, and I know you've seen it in other people, the greatest miracle of comfort is when we've been going through the most troubled times, and yet we have a deep peace and comfort that can only come from the Spirit of God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's his heart for you. Again, no matter how deep the trouble is, I wish I could promise that he'll just wipe away those circumstances and change things around. But no, even in the midst of that, He wants to bring you his peace. He wants to bring you rest for your soul. Receive that from your Jesus who loves you. So Jesus goes on, and let's let's continue reading now in in verse 4. So Jesus, hoping that the disciples are beginning to get what he's talking about, says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Well, unfortunately, they weren't catching on yet. So I pick it up at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So question number one from Thomas Now, verse 8, question number 2 from Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So, Jesus, hoping his disciples know what he's talking about, realizes very quickly they have clarifying questions. Just like us, right? We rarely catch on and then we're, we, we've got some clarifying questions here. Jesus, what are you talking about here? What do you mean? Where are you going? How can we find where you are? So it's in the midst of Jesus just pouring this out that Thomas, not getting it, asks for directions. Hmm. So I started thinking about asking for directions. So a little aside here for a while because I've had a lot of fun being here in Swift and getting all kinds of interesting directions as I get to visit a lot of you. And it's been very, very fun and interesting for the city boy to try to figure out country ways of giving directions to people, right? Now, I did grow up small town so, and had lots of farm friends. So I do remember that in my memory, the standard country way of giving directions was you know, whatever, you head three miles north of town on the main grid and then go two miles west and then one mile north again and our farm is the first one on the left, okay? So I can do that. I get the grid system and that was the way I grew up being told directions out in the farm. Now, I know today we could all cheat, right? Because, um, you know, we, call, we just all use Google Maps or I know even a lot of places that are remote, they just, uh, you know, you just GPS the signal and, and we, we can find places. But I've still had fun getting directions from a lot of you to your, to your places. Now, th these were my favorite directions, and so I'm going to tell them somewhat vaguely to play a bit of a game to see if you can figure out who I visited by these directions. But, but they were really good directions. So, so they said, okay, you go this certain direction from Swift. So I'm going to tell you which direction. And you drive, um, oh, I forget how many kilometers. They said, no, that'll help you out too much. Anyway, you drive about uh, 20 minutes, and now I, they had GPSed me the, on the road, like I could see it on my map, but I couldn't get an exact location. But here was, here was what I loved. They said, well, like I could see on the GPS that their farm was on the west side of the road. But here was the specific instructions for the city boy. They said, um, just before our farm, there's a farm just to the east that has an old truck sitting out, and we're the next farm to the right. <laughs> Does anyone know where I was visiting? The people that might know who are, could be sitting here listening online. But Anyway, uh, I just had a lot of fun with directions. And you know what? Directions are really important in many ways. But now back to the text. That was just my little aside for fun. Sometimes, though, Spiritually speaking, in our relationship with Jesus, directions can be a little bit of a distraction. You see, sometimes Jesus is saying, come to me. Come and get to know me. Spend time with me. Know my glory. And we're like Thomas. We're going, but we want directions. Jesus, tell me, what am I supposed to do tomorrow? What's your plan for my life? What are we supposed to do about this? What am I supposed to do about that? Like, so often we're coming to Jesus because we want directions, right? And maybe sometimes in our quest for directions, again, there's nothing wrong with wanting his will. That's good. There's nothing wrong with us wanting him to speak to us and guide us and direct us in our life he wants to. But I think sometimes we get overly focused on directions and miss what Jesus really wants. 
You know, that Jesus wants to be in relationship with us. Remember, he's preparing a room in his father's house so that we can be part of the family. That's what he values the most. So when Jesus says to them that they say, okay, like, so Thomas is going, okay, Jesus, we don't know, what are you talking about? Where are you going? How can we know? Give us directions. And then Jesus just simply says, I am the way. And he adds the truth and the life. But the main thing he's wanting to say here is, Thomas, Philip, my disciples, I am the way. Now for chapters, all through John, John has been showing us who Jesus is and how important it is for us to get who Jesus is. And they're still having so much trouble. And Jesus is saying to them in this moment, guys, don't you know who I am yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then Philip has the gall to say, okay, well, then just show us the Father and we'll be good. And he's going, ah, you still don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the way. You know, this text, and it's one of the famous uh, I am statements. There's so many. Jesus also said earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. He says here, I am the way. See, what Jesus is declaring is, is that he is God. See, this, this text can often be used as sort of a, can be controversial in, in some circles as a sort of the exclusivity of Christianity kind of statement. But that's, that's real, not really what Jesus is getting at here. What he's trying to say is, is that I am not just pointing you how to get to the Father. I am the way. I am he. The Father and I are one. Your way to the Father, your way to that presence, to that intimacy, to that family membership is by knowing me. The Father has been revealed to you. He's standing right here. And that's our Jesus. I found a couple quotes that uh, helped me capture part of this moment and and for how we can get it. Now, the first one's interesting because it's Albert Einstein. (laughs) And he said this, as a child... I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase managers, however, or mongers, however artful. Now, what's fascinating to me is that, you know, the brilliant mind of Albert Einstein, and I have no idea if he personally believed that Jesus was God or believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but, but even from his perspective, he was, what does he say here? He was enthralled. He was so enthralled by reading about Jesus in the Gospels up to who this person was that he, from that intellectual position, can say, there's just no way this can be a myth. Incredible. We, we need to be overcome as often as possible with who Jesus is. 
like the disciples, we can get off track. And, and yet, the number one revelation of God is Jesus, his presence, who he is. One more quote from, from commentator, theologian F.F. F. Bruce. He said, all truth is God's truth, as all life is God's life. But God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh who dwelt among us, paid the price on the cross, rose again from the dead to give us victory, that sinless we were singing about in it as well. Those are great, great promises. That's our Jesus. So Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus wanted to comfort his disciples. So I want to lead us now in a, in a time of response. And I want us to consider how the Holy Spirit may be calling us to respond to his word today. So I want you to think a little bit with me and ask this question. How am I, how are you distracted by many things, including looking for specific direction rather than trusting in the presence and power of Jesus? Let's ask ourselves this question today. Are we really pursuing Jesus? Are we pursuing answers? Are we pursuing experience? Are we pursuing Jesus? Now, I want to read for you a prayer that I've been praying lately in, in my own quiet times. And I want to read it to you first, and then I want to invite you to, to respond with me. So the prayer begins, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And just, just stay there for a moment. You know, we started off the service today by singing, you know, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And every time we sing that song, I can just hear people going, Really? <laughs> You know, just like what I said about heaven, don't get caught up in thinking that these images of, of even in this prayer, of being in the house of the Lord and the beauty of the temple, that doesn't mean that we're longing to be in church. You're off the hook. It doesn't mean that you're longing to be in church. It means that you're longing to be in God's presence. So that's what this imagery is all about. One thing I've asked of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, again, Old Testament, but in our perspective through Jesus, is to dwell in the presence of God with Jesus all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And where is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Where is Jesus' temple? Well, it's here in the hearts of all of us who follow him collectively building this huge spiritual temple and then connecting to heaven where the Father is. That's what we're seeking here. So know that in this prayer. And now, now here's the, the second half. Who is it that you seek? We seek the Lord our God. Do you seek him with all your heart? Amen. Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your soul? Amen. Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your mind? Amen. Lord, have mercy. And do you seek him with all your strength? Amen. Christ, have mercy.
I want you to, to see this prayer and just meditate on it for a moment. Now, what I love about the response is we're declaring together to say, Lord, we want to seek you. We want to seek your face. We want to seek your presence. And then what I love about the other lines is that we're saying yes and amen and yet appealing to his mercy because we're still human. So the ask here isn't for us to perfectly do this because we never will. We're human. And Jesus knows that. But we can make an affirmation of a yes and then cry out for mercy because we know there's forgiveness. But I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. So I'll give you a moment just to consider whether you can agree. And this is our response today. So I'm going to, in just a moment, read the call and then ask all of you to read the response with me. So just take a moment to meditate on it. So I invite you to pray with me. Who is it that you seek? We seek the Lord our God. Do you seek him with all your heart? Amen. Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your soul? Amen. Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your mind? Amen. Lord, have mercy. And do you seek him with all your strength? Amen. Lord, have mercy. May he hear the desires of your heart and truly have mercy on you today. And then I want to close with one more response. And that is to receive the comfort. The comfort of your Jesus who loves you so and calls you daughter and son. Receive it today. And listen again to Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you pour out in this place? Would you allow us to receive these words of Jesus right into the middle of our hearts? And Lord, I pray that as you heard the prayer of this congregation, to seek your face, to seek you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, we just appeal to your mercy and ask for your strength to truly be seekers of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Can ask the worship team to come, and we have a few more minutes to re- to respond to God's word today. So they're going to lead us in a song called "Living Hope." And what I love about this song is that we're not just talking about future hope, distant hope, someday hope. We serve a Jesus who gives us hope right now, right now, today, and whatever you're facing in the week to come. And so let's just continue responding to our Jesus. And let's worship and sing together the one who gives us living hope.
Please stand and sing with us. Thank <laughs> you.